come back and joy in the streets on Friday uh, when they thought all hope was lost and now everyone's rejoicing that the government has saved our bacon. Uh, every, everybody is just so happy. I think these are events that we've been looking for for a long time and I think that certainly this past month and especially this past week and what will follow in the <clears throat> weeks to come is a turning point in the emergence of the New World Order. Uh, someone commented to me that it looks like the head of gold is being placed on Babylon the Great. And certainly what we see is tumult in the financial markets, the financial system of the world, and it is going to re-emerge completely different than that which we have seen in the past. Uh, it can never again be what it has been in the past in this country. This was a truly momentous week. We have become the USSRA almost overnight. We have become socialist, we have become communist and fascist and all those terms put together by not only taking over a few companies but now the plan is in the works and Congress will debate it over the weekend and probably vote next week to nationalize basically all of our debt. That which the private banks, private finance houses have turned into a debacle of tremendous size is going to be nationalized. The bank is, I mean the government is going to buy all that debt And the bankers who have created the problem are going to go away scot-free. Now you can bet that they have been squirming in their chairs for quite some time now. And last night they were drinking doubles. Because the government is going to take over the debt and they get off scot-free. They should be imprisoned for fraud against the American people. And not only should they be in prison for fraud, so should those who just bought them out or are in planning on buying them out. Because what they have done is they have built a system whereby, and they did it with malice aforethought, because this is a part of developing the New World Order. They planned ahead of time to raise the price of fuel. Well, let's, let's go back a little further than that even. We could go a long way back, but for sake of brevity, I don't want to get into, into it too much. They created a fiat currency, and then over time, they took the gold and the silver standard completely away from it, so that it was just paper built, on, built with confidence on the American system. The American system is now losing the trust of the peoples of this world. But they made credit real easy some years back so that we might build all these McMansions that have sprouted up in every corner of this land in the last 10, 20 years. Houses that were way beyond what people could afford and they were allowed to have loans in many cases without even proving that they had a job or how much income they had or whether they were already in debt 
It was absolutely and utterly reckless. Now, I don't believe that those people who allowed that are completely stupid. They are fairly smart people. So obviously they were doing it with a plan in mind. Now certainly the greed factor is major here. They themselves were greedy, and the ones that are behind it all want to rule the entire world. But the bankers loved the idea of being given unlimited funds and almost no interest so they could loan it out to people willy-nilly and let them get in way over their heads, way over their heads in debt. And you and I have been offered credit cards by so many different banks and card companies, it's unbelievable. There for a while I was getting three, four, five, six, seven, eight a week, sometimes two or three a day. And it's already approved, it would say. They flooded us with opportunity to go into debt with a purpose in mind. Then once they had us in debt very deeply, they decided they would raise the price of fuel arbitrarily. There was no real reason for the price of fuel to go up except to make it tough for us to pay our mortgages. And then we began to default. This set up this whole program. Now then the banks began to get in trouble because of the defaults. But I'm sure it was well planned ahead of time that when it came time that the banks began to fail, that the financial elite would choose which ones they would allow to fail arbitrarily and which ones they would nationalize or support. So they let Lehman go under. Now, maybe that wasn't because they hated Lehman. It may have just been they wanted to scare us silly by letting some of those fail and have the others right on the edge before they decided to create out of thin air a trillion dollars to bail them out. And they, I've seen 1.3 trillion as a possibility, but there's actually no limit been placed on it at this point. Now, the government will own all those mortgages that have defaulted. And then what are we going to see? We're going to see the price of fuel probably go back up. And I know we're going to see the cost of almost everything go up astronomically. Because when you flood the market with new dollars, you create inflation automatically. So everything will be inflated. Well, what will that do? It will make it harder for people who could pay their mortgages to pay their mortgages. And many of them are going to be reset at higher per month payments anyway. So we've got dominoes that have been set up ahead of time. And now they've been tipped. Now, when these so-called good mortgages go bad, what happens? They buy them up too. And in fact... They may sell them to the Chinese and the Japanese and some of these people who are sitting there with trillions of United States dollars and nothing to do with them. 
And once they've been sold to those people, those people will want what? Something of value. The dollar will be worthless. But to them, who have a lot of people, houses would be a nice asset. God foresaw this a long time ago, and we looked at those scriptures not long ago in Zephaniah 1, in Isaiah 5, and there was another one or two, which show that we'll build all these houses and not live in them. Let's go for a moment to Zephaniah. Uh, I, I approached this, and I wanted to make it a part of the sermon, because where we are going with the prophecies and the understanding of Jacob's son, I mean, uh, Joseph's son Ephraim, ties right in with what happened. I'm going to go over to Zephaniah, because to read it right now, I think, will give a little deeper understanding to what we're looking at. Here he's talking in chapter 1, verse 2, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Eternal. He'll cut Baal off. He's going to, the day of the Lord is at hand, verse 7. Uh, he's bid his guests to the sacrifice of Israel. So that's the setting of Zephaniah. Verse 10, it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, just before the day of the Lord, just as these prophecies come to pass, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. A crashing of what? He explains. Howl, you inhabitants of Maktesh. That was the market, Israel of Jer market area of Jerusalem in that day. For all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. So the financial system is going to come down, be cut off. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, resting on their oars, thinking everything's fine. And a lot of people in this country up to this point have felt everything is just fine. They're beginning to get a rude awakening, aren't they? Or at least they got a terrible scare. And now a lot of them are saying, oh, thank God for big government because... Now my 401k will survive, my IRA will survive, my stock will survive, the stock market's going to go on back up, and we're saved. A lot of them have bought that overnight, had one good day on Wall Street afterward. That's not the way it's going to come down. They say in their heart, the eternal will not do good, neither will he do evil. God isn't really involved with government saving us, I guess you could say. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty. Booty is the spoils of war. Their goods, their things, our stuff. The material society that we have built and the material gods that we have are going to become booty for others. And their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. Haven't we built a lot of houses? And now we're being kicked out of them. And it's only the beginning. A small percentage have been kicked out to this point. But you're going to see the rest kicked out. 
because that is the prophecy that Almighty God set forth. So it has to come down that way. <clears throat> if there's any question, this answers it. We might say, well, this could get repaired, this will be better, everything will be okay. No, we're right before the day of the Lord. They'll build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof. The Napa Valley is going to be given as booty to others. And wine simply is, a, in the Bible, a, uh, a symbol of riches, of wealth. So our wealth will be taken away. The great day of the eternal is near, it is near, and hastes greatly. We know that the culmination of the prophecies is very near when we see people in America being kicked out of their homes that they have just built. I said some time ago that this needs to happen pretty soon, or we could say, yeah, we built them and we are living in them. But the building boom just stopped, and with it stopping, we are now being kicked out, and this will escalate. We're looking at a double-edged sword here. We were looking at financial destruction, which they premeditated and set up. And then suddenly, government is the savior. But those trillions of dollars will inflate prices so badly that everyone else will also lose their homes. And this prophecy will stand. I don't know exactly how it will work out in terms of time or exactly all the moves that will be made to bring it about, but the scripture is very clear that it will come to pass. And he emphasizes this greatly. At the time that our wealth goes away and we're kicked out of our houses, the day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hastes greatly. Now that's three times emphasis that the end of the age is upon us when we see this happening in Israel. So they may be rejoicing this weekend and how they've been saved out of all this, but it's a false hope. It will not last. Maybe they are putting the head of gold on the beast. The head of gold could represent the financial wealth of the world. I believe that to this point, America has been Babylon. But Babylon is falling. Twice in the scripture it talks about Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It falls twice. I believe we're going to see America as Babylon fall. Then we're going to see a great image, a great beast arise. And it will last a short time and fall as well. So mighty Babylon will fall twice. And we are in the throes of the first fall of Babylon. We have been the head of gold for the world. We have been the wealthiest nation. We have been the one that controls the wealth of the world through our dollar being the reserve currency for every nation on earth. If you're going to buy oil, you had to buy it with dollars. 
you had to have dollars to survive in this age. That is being taken away. People are starting to sell oil and other denominations of money. So we who have been the financial head, Ephraim and Manasseh, the city of London and New York, are going under. And then we will be militarily destroyed, because that's also in Revelation 17 and 18. So this is near, even the voice of the day of the eternal, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. They're going to think that they're going to usher in a new millennium, a new kingdom under Satan, and that it will rule the world. But they'll cry bitterly when God takes it all away. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet, a war and alarm against the defense cities and against the high towers. High towers of defense, perhaps even high towers of finance. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the eternal. And their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Be poured out just like manure coming out the hind end of a cow is the way we as a people are going to be poured out. Pretty graphic, but that's the way God explains it. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the eternal's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. We're going to captivity. That's where this is going to end. We're going to have foreign peoples who don't speak our language come into this country and take over our wealth, our assets. This is what they will repo, because we will owe them mightily. All right, I think that's probably enough of that, but I did want to comment on what we're seeing happen and put it in the light of Scripture, what God says is going to ensue henceforth. So we may see a little ripple here of confidence, and things may look like they're going to be all A-OK again. Don't know how long it'll last, whether it'll be days, weeks, or months, but it will not be a long period of time because God says when you start seeing the financial system coming apart, that the day of the Lord is near, it is near, it hastes greatly. That much emphasis means hang on to your hat, is what it means. It comes quickly. Now, let's go back for a moment to. Genesis 48, we spent quite a bit of time here, and I won't spend long at it, I want to move forward, but to review just briefly the story where Manasseh was the firstborn of Joseph, and Isaac put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, uh, and gave him double fruit, Ephraim, or Ephraim broken down, Ephra or Ephrata means uh, fruitfulness, and Em means two or double. And he was also made the firstborn son ahead of Manasseh, who by birth actually inherited it and was going to be receiving a double blessing. Joseph 
question that, but Isaac said, that's the way it will be. Uh, verse 19, truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a fullness of nations. Not necessarily a multitude, even though we are a 50 state or 50 sovereign state uh, multitude of nations who have given their power to Washington, D.C., which is not a state at all. But it is a Babylonian government that we have all given our allegiance to. We have surrendered our sovereignty to them. So 50 nations are under one king of Babylon. We did a whole series about who Babylon is, so I won't review all that at the moment. But currently I believe that America, the United States, is Babylon, the United States Corporation. And I'm not trying to fight the government by making these comments and just laying the truth out as it is. We won't have to fight them. <laughs> They'll destroy themselves. There's no need in us getting into the fray. He blessed them that day, saying, in verse 20, And you shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said, Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. And I've given to you one portion above your brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So where we find Ephraim, we're going to find double fruitfulness, double blessing as the firstborn. Well, that's the way God set it up. Then he called the sons together, chapter 49, and says, Gather yourselves, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. So this jumps from a family gathering and blessing of those two sons. It jumps forward from there to the end time. And indeed, we have studied Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and their lives because God lays a great deal of detail about their lives out in the Bible. And he tells us to go back and have our hearts turn to our fathers. So God gave us a history of those individual men and their lives. Showed some of the mistakes they made. Showed the trials, troubles, tribulations they had. And he showed the strength of character and the good parts of their personalities, I think particularly of Joseph there, who was able to make anything turn out right, to make it go to the good, who had an incredible positive outlook on things. So many of those characteristics that are good we found when we studied the lives individually of those men. But suddenly we come to the end of that story with a blessing on these two young lads and it ends. There's nothing about their personal lives whatsoever. There's no history there. And yet here we are, either of Ephraim and Manasseh, and I choose to believe, and I think the uh, data will confirm it, that we are Ephraim, not Manasseh. But we know nothing of the man. It simply jumps to the last days. And as I said last week, uh, there is more about Ephraim in the prophecies than any other tribe save Judah. There's very little about Manasseh and only mentioned in connection with Ephraim 
And the other tribes are hardly mentioned at all, except in the division of land at the end, in the chapters 47 and 8 of uh, Ezekiel. So Ephraim will be the key figure in prophecy, and we're going to see that here as we proceed. Uh, let's review also Deuteronomy 33:17. I won't turn there for sake of time, but it says there will be the thousands of Manasseh and the ten thousands of Ephraim. And we see that our population of Israelite Ephraimites is certainly far greater than that of Great Britain and the United Kingdom. Now, they have made the argument that while Britain had a worldwide empire that included India and China and so on, uh, that is true. But those Indians and Chinese were not Brits. They had a very, very few Brits there who controlled those peoples for a short time. And I'm not so sure if you throw all the Australians and so-called Ephraimites that we've looked at that way, who went around the world, they would not even begin to compare population-wise with the amount of Ephraimites that we have here in this country. So let's, uh, let's see how the story develops then and see if this is indeed may be borne out in the prophecies of the end time. Uh, let's move a little forward. We'll go to Joshua. We won't go quite to the last days yet, but I want to pick out a couple of things here. Uh, Joshua, you know, starts, the, the, the story skips to Moses when they came out of the captivity that they went into uh, when Joseph died and so on. And it comes out on the other side with the beginning of the book of Exodus with the story of Moses and how he was to bring them out of that captivity. And then at Moses' death, Joshua was chosen to lead them into the promised land. So Moses led them out of sin, or Egypt, but then Joshua, an Ephraimite, was chosen to lead them into the promised land. It will be interesting to see in the church where and what in what country all of these things transpire here at the end. Remember we read that, jo that uh, Joseph would be a fruitful bough and so on there in Genesis 49 and was given a long list of blessings far above the rest of the children of Israel. And it included Ephraim and Manasseh there. It didn't split it out, but it gave it to Joseph. And the United Kingdom and America have been the ones blessed way above what any of the other tribes have been. So I think it's very clear that the United Kingdom and America represent Joseph. But here in uh, Joshua, let's see, where am I? We're chapter 17. Is that where I wanted to pick this up? I guess I skipped over somewhere here the story of, uh, of Moses and how he sent the spies into the land. And when they came back, most of those spies says, Oh, you can't do this. 
they're too big and they're too strong and we can't fight them. And Joshua and Caleb rent their clothes. Caleb stood up and said, and he was a Jew, they sent a, a man from each tribe. Caleb was of Judah and Joshua was of Ephraim. And those were the only two that stood up and said, we can and will prevail. Now we're going to find that the end time centers on Ephraim as a physical land and the people of Ephraim, and that it centers on Judah as the spiritual Jews. And those were the ones that stood up. It will not surprise me in the least if we see spiritual Jews at the end time, not physical Jews, spiritual Jews, standing up in the land of Ephraim. That seems to be the way the story is led out, or, or is laid out, excuse me. Um, where was that? I'm, I'm giving it to you, but I didn't give you the reference. Um, but those two were the ones that stood up, and then Joshua the Ephraimite was chosen to lead them into the promised land. So we're going to see some of those things at the end as well. And in fact, that name Joshua comes up in the prophecies of Haggai and of Zechariah of the end-time church. And it comes up, of course, with Joshua, uh, Christ himself, who is the true leader of all the tribes and came from Judah itself. But that does come up throughout. Uh, verse 14 of Joshua 17 the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, for as much as the Eternal has blessed me up to this point? So Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph, said, We've grown greatly. Why don't we have an extra portion? Joshua answered them, If you be a great people, then get you up to the wood country, up into the mountains, up into the trees, and cut down for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for you. If you need more land, you can have the mountains. The children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. I suspect that where we see the end-time fulfillment of some of these things, we're going to see some mountains around in the area. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, verse 17, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be yours, for it is a wood, and you shall cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, so they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. So he gave them an extra portion as they had been told they would receive by Isaac. In that dispensation, and we'll see it again in the end time as well. So the story, the pattern continues throughout. Now let's go to the Psalms. We've not taken in this group the time to go through all the Psalms, and I... I would like to do it at some point, but I can imagine it being a series of about 300 sermons. 
150 chapters, so I don't know whether that'll happen or not, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, let's go to Psalm 60. And I'll just make a brief comment that the book of Psalms has some wonderful, inspirational chapters. In fact, the whole book is pretty inspirational for the most part. And that's what the world looks to it as, you know, they'll have their New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs put in. That's their whole Bible, a lot of them. Because they look for wisdom and inspiration from Psalms and Proverbs to go with the New Testament. It doesn't talk, does it, that much about the law. Oh, yes, it does, all the way through there. But they ignore that part because it's uplifting. But the Psalms are a prophecy. It's a prophetic book. And if you study it carefully, you'll find that at the beginning of the Psalms, you have a situation that out of it comes the church, and then the, all the convolutions, the growth, the convolutions, and what happens to the church. And then we see at the end of the book of Psalms a change and blessing again. So it goes from its start through the blessings of growth, through the sin and dissolution, and then to the restoring. And that is the story of Psalms all the way through. So with that thought in mind, let's examine the places where the tribes of Israel are mentioned specifically in the book of Psalms. And you won't find much in here except for Judah and Ephraim. And not a whole lot about even Ephraim, but it's here. So let's go to chapter 6. Our chapter 60 of Psalms, O God, you have cast us off, you have scattered us, you have been displeased, O turn yourself to us again. So we're in that part of the Psalms where the church has been scattered, uh, the nation is about to be scattered, and there is this cry. You have made the earth to tremble, you have broken it, heal the breaches thereof, for it shakes. We've seen breaches in the wall of the church, we've seen it go down. Now we are not just predicting or looking at in the future sometime the fall of this nation. We are in process of seeing it happen. So that's where we are now, not just in the spiritual, but in the physical application of this prophecy, because it's, it has both sides all the way through. You have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. You have given a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now the church is still dissolving, but soon we're going to see, as the last chapter of Haggai says, an ensign, a banner, raised before the people of God. Zerubbabel. Because of the truth. That man will display the truth of God before the world. That your beloved may be delivered. The church is going to see deliverance soon. Save with your right hand and hear me. Won't we cry out to God and ask for salvation and help and hope? We already are, aren't we? Almost daily, I would say. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkoth. In other words, he's going to divide the land up again. <coughs> uh, 
Shechem was in Ephraim and Manasseh, basically, and the valley of Succoth was around Jerusalem in the land of Canaan. He says, Gilead is mine. Now, Gilead, if you go back to Joshua 17, was partly Gad, but half of it belonged to Manasseh when they divided up the land. And Ephraim also is the strength, uh, well, wait a minute, Gilead is mine, so Manasseh uh, was encompassed part of her half of Gilead. So what he's speaking here is he's going to divide up the land of Manasseh, of Ephraim, and the area around Jerusalem, or that which was held by Judah. So what we can expect here at the end, when we see the church scattered, the nation about to be scattered, the God is going to bring about a resurrection of truth, and it is going to be centered where? In those areas, I believe, that were originally Judah and Ephraim, and Manasseh being part of that would be satellite. Where did we see the church raised up in the end time? Through Herbert Armstrong. It was primarily in Ephraim and Manasseh. Specifically in Ephraim with a branch office in Manasseh in Great Britain. So what we are seeing here in a prophecy of the end time is that this will be centered not in Gad or Asher or Zebulun or Naphtali or one of the other tribes, but it will be centered where it originally was centered. Ephraim represented the ten north tribes. Judah represented Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. So, again, we will be brought into those areas and the leadership of Israel will be there. The leadership of the church will be there. Notice that it's talking about the truth here. And the nations of Great Britain and the United States and Canada do not have the truth. Only the church does. And most of the church has left the truth. So it has to be talking about those who will be faithful to the truth of God being gathered in the area that was originally Manasseh, Ephraim, and Judah. That's what we should see here at the end time. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Specifically that part of Gilead that was Manasseh. Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Now he mentions Manasseh here in connection with Ephraim, but he says Ephraim is the strength of my head. Now God controls everything through his head and through the one whom he has made head of the church and who will be the ruler of the world supplanting Satan the devil, his son, the Christ. But Ephraim is the strength of his head. So the power in the end time would be where? In Ephraim. Now where is the great power today as we look at the world scene? Where has the great power of Israel been in these latter days? you have to look a long way back to see the power of Manasseh. 
And Herbert Armstrong, I think, made a wrong definition here because he did not yet see the end time as it would play out. And he died before it played out, didn't he? So he was old enough to go to school and see the British Empire and what it had been because America had not come to be the sole power on earth at that time. Russia was still going during his lifetime. And the Cold War was there. And we had two so-called superpowers at that time. But Russia was divested of that, and America became the only end-time superpower. And when we got to the actual end-time scenario, Britain is basically gone. Its gates were gone. Its empire was gone. And the United States empire was here. And we have been an empire. We have held an iron-fisted rule financially over the entire world. The whole world has been dependent upon us for their industry to even function. Japan, Taiwan, now China, India. India didn't become... India, when I was small, well, I'm still small. Well, I'm getting bigger, but you know what I mean. When I was young, I used the wrong word. India was about the poorest nation on earth. That's what we read about in school was how poor India was. And now because of American consumerism and shipping jobs over there, India is coming out of it and becoming a wealthier nation. They even have nuclear power. China is becoming a powerhouse because of whom? Because we shop at Walmart, that's why. We buy everything they make. We have had absolute power over the finances of the whole world. And they have bowed to our will. And anyone who would not bow to our will, essentially, we have destroyed. So we have had almost total hegemony of the entire world. If that is not power over a multitude of nations, I don't know what is. It far surpasses what Britain had in the days of sailing ships. Far surpasses it. Ephraim is the strength of my head. It has been the power. Judah is my lawgiver. So God chose Judah to give the law through, uh, through Christ himself. Uh, but Ephraim is the political strength. And Ephraim also is the firstborn. We'll see that clearer when we get to Jeremiah. It lays it out in First Chronicles 5, 1 through 2. And it says right there, we read it recently, that Reuben had been supplanted by Joseph particularly by Ephraim, because of Reuben's sin with Bilhah, his father's uh, concubine, or wife, as it says, I think, there. So Judah's my lawgiver, Moab is my washpot, over Edom will I cast out my shoe. So he says, in his view, uh, Moab is, Ammon and Jordan, is uh, what he washes his clothes in. Over Edom 
Esau will I cast out my shoe. The other shoe is going to drop on Esau. Read the book of Obadiah. And believe me, the Rothschilds, meaning red shield or red badge, are Edomites, and they are behind what's happening in the financial situation in New York and London today. They are there, and they will laugh at the calamity, because God says they will. And then he is going to drop his shoe on them as a result of that. So make no mistake, there is a conspiracy, and Edom is in it. Esau is still there against his brother Jacob, and they are the ones behind this. When you read articles about the Jewish Zionist bankers who are controlling things from behind the scene, those are absolutely dead-on correct because that's what Scripture says will happen at the end. They will be in the wealthy places, and they will knock the yoke of Jacob off their neck and laugh at our calamity when we fall. Now, when I say those people are drinking double martinis and laughing, that's Scripture. That's not just Daryl's opinion about what's happening in New York and Washington and Berlin today. It's scripture. It's prophecy. Will not you, O God, which had cast us off, and you, O God, which did not go out with our armies? Who will bring me into the strong city? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Who are we going to look to? You and me. Who are we going to look to? You and I, I should say. Who are we going to look to in this mess? We're going to look to the bankers? We're going to look to the U.S. government? Are we going to look to the U.N.? No, we're going to look to God. Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. That's speaking of the church, the truth, right there. Let's go to chapter 78 of Psalms. Chapter 78. Let's see. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. God is going to utter some parables, some things that might be hard to understand. Christ said he spoke in parables so that they could not understand, not that he spoke in parables so they could understand simple country analogies and make the meaning clear. He said, no, I spoke in parables so they couldn't understand. Utter dark sayings of old. He says, give ear, O my people. That would be his church. Now, in a larger sense, it could even include his people Israel physically, because they need to listen to God too. But they're not inclined to, and they've got to go through all of this trouble that is to come before they will even begin to listen. Now, we have a chance to listen now. So we need to take this personally. Give ear, my people. I'm going to tell you some dark things from old times. But they have meaning and bearing for today, obviously. He's going to tell you some things from back there that have meaning today. 
Remember, he told them what would befall them in the latter days. Sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. They knew about the deliverance of the Red Sea and Egypt and all of those things. They knew those stories from the past. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generations to come the praises of the Eternal and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. So He says the laws, the ways of God that were given to Jacob need to be repeated generation after generation they need to be taught to our children, and especially our children right now, because our children today are, fa are facing the most frightful era that has ever been on the face of the earth. Our children today will not live and grow old and have children and grandchildren in the current culture as we have. They are looking at a pivotal time of change on this earth. And they are looking at World War III coming up very shortly. And their only hope is to understand the laws of Jacob and to obey God and be saved out of it. The rest of the children of this nation and 90% of the children of the people of the church of God are going into the tribulation and they are going to die horribly and painfully there. Only those who hear the truth and respond to it will have opportunity to be saved out of what is about to break on this country. Now I've been talking about it here for several years. And it's always been something off in the future. But it's not off in the future now. There are a lot of Americans who really, really got scared over the course of this past month. Actually, this past six or eight months since, well, really all the way back to October of 07 when things began to get a little tight. And they got a little tighter, and the price of fuel went up, and this and that happened. And then it got worse and worse, and people began losing their homes and their jobs. And it's now harder to find a job than it used to be already. And now, a lot of people who had had their head in the sand, ostriches don't, but people do, I guess, have suddenly been shaken in this past two or three weeks to realize that their 401ks and their IRAs and their Social Security were going down the tubes. And they have seen an inkling that the whole world economic system is coming apart at the seams. And it was beginning to affect them because they were watching the figures at Wall Street and how, you know, it went from, what, 14.5 about October of last year down to below 11,000 this last week and looked like it was one of the whole bottom fallout with all these huge financial companies going down. They got a glimpse and a lot of them began to really get scared 
And they're on the talk shows and everywhere saying, what can I do with my money? What with, well, with what's left of it. So they began to get scared. And now, with the announcement that the government's going to bail it out and big government's going to make it A-OK for everybody, they suddenly encourage and think that the American dream is not over and that all their retirement will be saved and we will be saved. Wrong. They're going to have a brief moment of security and then all hell is going to break loose in this country. They got a glimpse. And then they shut their eyes for a moment and they're going to get a real good look because it's coming. So we better let our children know that there's only one way out of this. And that's obedience to God and His ways. I know it's a confused, frustrated generation that you young people, whether you're 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 or 19 or 20 or 25, right now don't see mates, you don't see opportunities. This seems so oppressive to you in some respects, and it has to, because you don't see much light at the end of the tunnel. But you're going to begin to see all the light disappear from the American tunnel very shortly. And the only place you're going to see any light at all is here, in the church of God and in those who will stay with the way of God and the laws of God. That's where your hope lies. It's in God. It is not in man. It is not in the educational system or college. That's all going away. It is not in jobs. Those are going away. The employment rate is rising right now. It's going to get worse. The price of everything is going to go sky high. And then it will disappear. <clears throat> so you better find out where the bread is and who's buttering it. God has the bread of life and he controls the butter. Now where was I here in this? that the generation, verse 7, to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Go back and review what God has done in the past. That's what we've been doing in telling the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and now Ephraim. How God blessed and delivered those people. He made them into a great nation and nations. And now we skip forward to the end time and what will befall those nations. And God lays it out very clearly. So he's saying, hope in God and remember him and what he's done in the past and trust that he will do the same in the future. So don't forget God, his works, but keep his commandments. And they might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Don't be like Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah and Gad and Asher and Zebulun and those tribes of Israel who when they came out of Egypt and got settled in the promised land became stubborn and rebellious and would not obey God and they went into captivity again. And then he gave them a covenant 
and told them, I'll take you into captivity again in ships if you disobey me again. Now all those ships that have been hauling goods for Walmart have deposited probably millions of empty containers in this country. Thousands of ships plying the seas, bringing goods to America to sell to enhance their economies. And we're going to stop buying, and all those ship captains are going to be sitting out, as it says in Revelation 18, in the seas, crying because they have nothing to haul anymore. You know what they're going to start doing? They're going to start loading those ships with Americans and hauling them to China and India and Germany and Egypt and the Arab Emirates and make slaves of them. We'll get to the book of Hosea, maybe not today, but hopefully soon. And it describes Ephraim particularly as a backsliding heifer, rebelling against being led to the barn in safety. Do not become a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart correctly or rightly. Is your heart on the things of this world? It's materialism. It's clothing, it's shoes, it's hats, it's music, it's electronic goo-gaws, it's entertainment. That's what this nation has its heart set on. And those things are going to be taken away and destroyed. And that generation is going into captivity and be slaves in foreign lands. Do you have your heart set right on the things of God, or is it set on the things of this world? Now, I will tell you that by nature, by inclination, by just simply being human, these things appeal to you. They are where your heart would normally, naturally go, because they can be fun, they can be exciting, and they can just seem like the place to be and the way to go. We like to fill our five senses. We like to entertain ourselves and enjoy and have fun. God made us physical. He did it. And we are physical. But he put us here on this earth to learn to control ourselves, to obey Him and serve Him. And if we would learn to do that, He would give us life and peace and excitement and happiness forevermore. But He had to make us this way because He had a spirit being who had all those things and rebelled against Him and became a fallen angel and is full of misery and hatred and lying and cheating today. And he wanted to increase his family. He wanted to have more gods. But he was not about to confer that office on us unless we would come down here and go through boot camp and prove that we will not go Satan's way in the way of the flesh.
So some of those natural, carnal, that is, just the way we were born, desires that we have, we have to learn to control and sublimate to God. I mean that by that, to subject, control those things and turn our energies to God. And in so doing, we will save ourselves from dying of starvation, of famine, disease, and the pregnant women having the babies ripped out of their wombs. We'll read that, I'm sure, when we get to the story on Ephraim a little down the line. When they come in here shortly, any woman who is pregnant is going to have her stomach split open with sores because a woman who is pregnant doesn't have much ability to be a worker. And they're going to hate us. It's not a pretty picture, so don't be stubborn and rebellious. If you want to save yourself, turn to God. And it's talking about our young people, generation after generation. Teach them the way to save themselves out of this. And I know it's easy to get discouraged and say, well, it's all going to come down anyway and we're all going to go through this. But don't overlook all these things that say that you can be saved out of it if you put your hope and your trust and your obedience in God. Now I say that to the young people and I say it to the old people. Because all of us have to make those choices. Without vision, the people perish. And you young people need vision of what it can be. And God is going to give us that. He's going to turn this around in his church. And we're going to see physical blessings on this earth beyond anything that America ever had. It will be testimony to the rest of the world of what God can do in spite of everything that is going to be going on and the cataclysms at the end of this age. And you have opportunity to be part of that when they're starving and diseased and being torn apart with bombs and swords, you have opportunity to be in a protected place and have plenty of everything. Read Isaiah 54. Let's not be like the generation that didn't set their heart right and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Even a child is known by his works. Are you going to be steadfast with God, or are you going to go the way of the world and go down with it? You have a choice. All right, it says, The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turn back in the day of battle. Ephraim is supposed to be leading Israel today. Ephraim has been the physical leader that God gave the physical blessings to that would become a blessing to all Israel and the whole world. But we have turned back in the day of battle. We made a covenant with God that we would obey him and he would bless us. But we have disobeyed him and now he is cursing us. And the curse is about to be unleashed in ways unbelievable. So just as we come down to the battle, even spiritual Ephraim, who represents the firstborn of many 
to come. Well, Christ the first of the firstborn, but Ephraim is the firstborn. And when God made Ephraim the firstborn, he started the church of the firstborn in Ephraim. It could not be any way. Why would he name Ephraim the one that is going to have the double blessings and be the leader and then start his church in Manasseh, who was not the firstborn? But that was taken away and given to Ephraim. And even the church, I think, made the mistake of putting Manasseh ahead of Ephraim. This is where it's all coming down, is in this country, not in the United Kingdom. goes on to say, they turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. What has Worldwide Church of God done? We covenanted with God at baptism that we would walk in his law. We made a covenant with our God. And we see the church, the firstborn, turning away from God in droves by the tens of thousands and ignoring his law saying it's done away and not keeping it. Well, this is a prophecy fulfilled right now in the church. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them, forgot all the things that he did in the church and calling a people, a called-out group, and giving us his truth and seeing us through third tide years when it, you couldn't put a pencil to it and make it work. But he gave blessings and he made it work. When we couldn't see an answer, God gave it. And I've heard many, many stories from you and other people around the church. It says, boy, I didn't think I was going to survive my third dive year, and I came out on the other side better off than I was when I went in. There are many such testimonies. But we have people who forsake the laws of God. They refuse to walk in his law. Forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Then he talks about Egypt and some of the things that God did. They spoke against God in verse 19, saying, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Maybe we're at the same point. We've been, been led out into the wilderness, and now we might begin to have our hopes flag and our eyes get off God and say, Well, it didn't come when I thought it would, and suddenly it didn't just turn into pools and springs everywhere. Maybe God can't furnish a table in the wilderness. Maybe God didn't tell us the truth. Maybe we were wrong. Has God ever blessed his people without testing them first? Not in any scripture I ever read anywhere. He says, obey me and the blessings will follow. And he never says exactly when or how they will follow or whether it will be immediate or not. And when he got them through incredible miracles brought up right here and getting them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. Egyptians drowned, all their problems were solved, and God didn't have a pool of water waiting on the other side of the Red Sea where they could immediately get a drink. And they began to gripe and murmur and complain immediately. Now do you think God would not have tried and tested them carefully before giving them such a great blessing as this promised land that we have today? No. And then they disobeyed and God kicked them out of here, sent them overseas. And only 
400 years ago, allowed us to come back. And boy, have we crapped it up. Somebody might think that's indelicate to put it that way, but if you've ever read the Bible, did you notice how God will cause our blessings to fall as dung? God is pretty explicit. He wants us to get the point. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? He smote the rock. Out came water. Wasn't immediate. But God wanted to know whether they'd obey or not. Verse 22 gives the problem. Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Verse 41, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now we have read a lot of promises that would come on the end time church if we would obey and begin to build the temple the way God says we should in Haggai and Zechariah. Do we believe him? Are we going to limit him? Or do we actually believe those promises? And are we going to see them fulfilled? Let's go down, let's see, to verse 68, uh, verse 67. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. Now, God had set Joseph as the leaders of Israel, hadn't he? Through Jacob, through Joseph. And he had put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. So Ephraim was to be the one who had double blessing, double portion, who would receive the autonomy, the sovereignty over, the leadership of the other children. The firstborn son is given that in Scripture. Double inheritance. So God had selected Ephraim to lead. But what did Ephraim do? They disobeyed and rebelled. And he chose not the tribe of Ephraim specifically. Not of Joseph, and specifically not of Ephraim. God would have, had Ephraim obeyed, sent Christ as an Ephraimite. But he didn't do it. Chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he had established forever. He chose David also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people, and Israel his inheritance. So he chose to go through the tribe of Judah with kingship, and Christ was born of that same line, and we are today known as spiritual Jews. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness, skillfulness of his hand. The book of Isaiah talks about an end-time David that will come along. That God will guide and lead to lead his people in right paths. So in spiritual Judah, God will provide good leadership before this is over, and he will lead those who will be faithful, the remnant of God, in the way that David did the way that Christ did, 
because we as a ministry in this end time church thus far have not been what David and Christ were. And we have need of great and deep repentance from the way we led God's people. And we're overlords over them. We're here to help your joy. We're here to lead you and guide you in the right direction. To cry aloud and spare not if you don't go that direction. But we're not here to tell you what color car to buy. We're not here to inspect everything in your house. We're not here to try to live your lives for you. We're here to direct you in the way that you should go. And then you need to go there. If you're going there, we try to encourage you. If you're not going there, then we're instructed to yell at you, to cry aloud. Christ was at times very mild and very gentle, but at times he let them have it, didn't he? And knowing when and how to do all those things is difficult. How much of this and how much of that? So the ministry today, which has not been what it should have been, and I was not what I should have been, need all your prayers, your help, and your support, that we might lead you in the right way. We have to do the right way. It's one thing to know it, and even that is sometimes difficult, to know which way God wants us to go. And it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of thought and a lot of study to get that sorted out. But then even when you know where to go, it is very difficult to accomplish it. It is so easy for us to leave parts of the things God tells us to do and let them fall to the ground. We're not to let any of his words fall to the ground, but it's hard not to because the elders, the ministry, and the church of God are human too. And we have five senses. And we have to submit ourselves to God and to his word the same way everyone else does. And in no way are we above the people. Only God has appointed some who might have those proclivities to be there to teach, to guide, to lead. And it's a very heavy responsibility. It's not something I look forward to, as I said at the beginning. It wasn't planned. I just said it. I fear sermons. But I want to give you the words of God. I don't want to give you my words. And it's hard to yourself be what you ought to be and be able to lead by example. It's not easy at all. In fact, it even says of Aaron that God made a high priest of men so that he might consider his own sins and faults and weaknesses and go cleanse himself so that he could then stand for the people before God and ask that their sins be forgiven. So God did that on purpose. And I try always to go to God in prayer before ever approaching a sermon or a counseling or anything else and ask for his guidance and wisdom and help and strength and that his words be brought out, not mine. It's very difficult. But God says that's the way we need to be here at the end time. And this is a prophecy about how it would be. So we look to and hope to have 
this kind of leadership here in the near future. But God will give it to us. Now let's go to chapter 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a flock, you that dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Doesn't God say he's going to turn his face back to us and shine upon us? Well, here's a prophecy of that. We've read those prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, we've not always picked them up back here, but they've always been here. I think I have come back to the Psalms a few times. You that dwell between the cherubims, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now, where in the end time do you see most of the church? The great majority was in both the United States and Great Britain and one other. Canada. Probably, I'm not sure, but I think that the church in Canada was probably even bigger than it was in the United Kingdom and Great Britain in terms of numbers here at the end time. Here's just a thought, and I don't know that I could prove it or could back it up, and I might not be right about it, but he lumps together here Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh to stir up their for him to stir up his strength and come and save us. Now we have said Benjamin was Norway. I don't know that that is entirely true. It may be, and there may be a mixture, because there was some mixture among some of the tribes. Remember, Gilead was half Manassite and half Gad, for instance. And we have, in the church, said, well, Canada was probably what we called Ephraim and Reuben, because of all the French that are there. But it wouldn't surprise me if you look at a map, even a map of the Middle East, where they divided the tribes up according to what they thought were the boundaries there. You'll find Benjamin very near <coughs> Ephraim and Manasseh. It makes me wonder if we don't have a pretty good-sized contingent of Benjamites across our northern border in Canada. I don't know that that is the truth, and that thought only came to me this morning when I was going through some of these scriptures. But we have Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh here. And who were the sons of Rachel? Joseph and Benjamin. And you would think that God would put Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh together with Benjamin pretty close. Because that's the way Joseph or Jacob looked at it. So, just a thought but it's primarily in Canada, the United States, and Britain that we find the majority of the church today. And that's the way it's shaped up in the end time. So when you read this, it makes you wonder if those who are looking for God to shine his face upon them are not primarily in those nations. Turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? So here we are, the church, primarily in those three countries in terms of numbers. Yeah, there's some scattered all over the world, but most are in those three areas. And that's what he addresses here. And the majority of the church, by far, is in those three areas, 
and by far in this nation above those others, the firstborn, Ephraim. So we are the ones who are looking for God's face to shine upon us and be saved. A few in Malaysia, a few in South Africa, a few here, a few there around the world. But he names where the majority are right here. And Norway did not have a huge church in the end time either. So it just makes me wonder. I don't know. If anybody can turn up any information about identities that we might have overlooked, that would be interesting. I'm just looking at this scripture and a couple of others and how Benjamin and Joseph were the sons of Rachel and the dearest to Jacob. It makes me wonder if there's not some end-time tie that would not be just as close for what it's worth. Well, let's... Well, we're about done with time here. Maybe that's enough. It goes on to talk about how he brought a vine out of Egypt and the vineyard which he had planted in verse 15 and how it's been burned with fire. And it sounds just like the minor prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel about how the church and now the nation are being torn down. So that's probably enough for today. We'll stop there and pick the story up with Ephraim next time.